The estate is released every Wednesday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV, Sonoro, or their employees. This podcast also contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on The Estate. We were two, a black and a brown, that wasn't following the norms of what we should be doing. People say we was too uppity, high up, we were out of order. My feeling was that he was a person capable of killing someone else and killing someone else for money. Get me the fuck out of this county. Who was the actual killer? And when I say, I don't know. When we left off, Angelina and I had just received a giant box of documents from Calvin Jones, my dad's former business partner and best friend. The box was full of old police statements, trial transcripts, and court documents. But as we sorted through the hundreds of pages, a picture of the murder started to take shape. We start with New Year's Eve, 1973, the night Tony Virgilio was killed. This is a recreation of that scene based on police reports and the trial transcript. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Yeah, there's a guy passed out in the street. Um, I think he's drunk. Okay, where is he? Fremont Square. Uh, you can't miss him. He's right in the middle of Sutter Street, on the east side of the park. Shortly before 7 p.m., patrol officer Alfred Everett and his partner, officer Bruce Dodge, responded to a report about an injured man lying in the middle of the street. It was Tony. That must be him. What's going on? He's hurt. I think he's been shot. Call an ambulance. The rest of you stand back. This is Officer Everett. We need paramedics at the 400 block of North Sutter. Victim has multiple gunshot wounds. Tony was shot in the leg, chest, and stomach. The ambulance arrived and took him to St. Joseph's Hospital, just a mile north of the park. (laughs) After being rushed into the ER, Tony is taken in for emergency surgery. Scalpel, he's losing a lot of blood. But he doesn't make it. By 9.30 p.m., Tony is dead. From Sonoro in partnership with Tenderfoot TV, I'm Alex Estrada. You're listening to episode two of The Estate. If you haven't heard episode one, stop and go back and listen. Because to understand this story, the story of my father, of his best friend, and whether they killed their business partner, you need to go back to the beginning. When I first started looking into this case, one thing was clear. Just hours after Tony Virgilio was murdered, my dad, Rosalio Estrada, and Calvin Jones were the police's prime suspects. What I wanted to know was why. 
especially when my dad said the police never had any evidence against him. It didn't take long for me to find out why that was. It all traces back to the man himself, Tony Virgilio. In his final moments of life, Tony told police who had him shot. So, the person Tony allegedly spoke to was Sergeant Robert Ross, a veteran Stockton police detective, and he's key in this whole thing. He's the person who shows up to the hospital as Tony is getting rushed in. Sergeant Ross would also go on to be the lead investigator in this case. Now, according to him, on the night of the murder, he arrived at the hospital and asked Tony who shot him. As he struggled to breathe, Tony gave Ross two names. Rosie Estrada and Calvin Jones. Which of them shot you? Neither of them. Shot by a black dude. Never seen him before. But Estrada and Jones had me shot. Again, this is based on police records. Calvin called me up, told me to meet him at Joe Michaels. Joe Michaels was the company's attorney. (laughs) And that evening, they were going to talk about the breakup of their partnership. But when Tony arrived, there was someone waiting for him in the company car. Oh, the black dude came out. Told me Calvin would be late. He was tied up with a woman. He pulled the gun, made me get in the back seat of my car. Told me he didn't want to shoot me, but he had to. And you say Calvin Jones was responsible for this? Yes. That moment between Tony and the sergeant would direct the police's entire investigation. Within hours of the shooting, they already had their suspects. But Angelina and I had a lot of questions surrounding the exchange between Ross and Tony. He had eight gunshot wounds. He had eight gunshot wounds, right. Okay, and like, we can say that two of those were in his chest. Right. At point-blank range. Close up. Right, like, doesn't that make you suspicious? In terms of... Like, his ability to give a dying declaration. Oh, just how fucking close it was and how many... Well, I mean, for me, it's, like, how many times he was shot. Like, that's kind of the thing and, like, where he was shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So why does that make you suspicious? Well, it's like, if a dude is shot, has that many holes in him, Mm -hmm. like, how the fuck is he awake? Like, how is he even aware of what's going on? Right. Yeah. It's not easy to find someone who's been shot eight times and lived to tell the tale. So it was difficult to confirm if it was possible to still be talking. The only person I could think of was 50 Cent. It doesn't hurt as much as people imagine it hurts because of your adrenaline and how the shock of what's actually going on, it hurts after. Thanks, Fiddy. So he proves that someone can be shot multiple times and become a multi-platinum rap artist. However, it doesn't really shed any light on our murder. For that, we turn to an emergency room doctor. Hello, good morning. Is this Dr. Wapen? Yes, it is. Hi, this is Angelina Mosier Salazar calling. Yes. Yes, how are you doing? Dr. Bruce Wapen spent 25 years as an emergency room physician. He also has some law enforcement experience on a SWAT team. Dr. Wapen said the important thing to understand is that as soon as the ambulance arrives, Tony is getting oxygen and blood to keep him alive. He's going to get multiple IVs started, multiple units of blood hung. So that's going to be compensating for his blood loss. 
According to the testimony of the ER doctor, Tony is still talking at this point. But Wapen does admit it's remarkable that Tony lasted as long as he did. It's really quite amazing considering the lethality of several of the bullet wounds that he sustained. The official conclusion, Tony was alive long enough to physically give a dying declaration. In hindsight, this seems obvious. Getting a dying declaration from a murder victim is quite rare. So it's natural that whenever police officers do get a hold of one, they treat it like gold. It becomes a key element of the investigation. Let's say Tony had this super strong heart, right? And that he had eight bullet wounds and was still alive and coherent to actually give a statement to police, okay? But it's the dying declaration itself. It's like it's like what Tony said. Right. It's the information and it is like, you know, they weren't the ones that shot me, but, you know, Calvin and Rosie were behind this. And it's it's weird. Like, how could he possibly know that? Yeah. Like, where does that information come from? Yeah. And, like, I mean, he just gives a lot of information. Right. You know? So, I mean, like, is it physically—okay, po- it's physically possible to be alive. It's physically possible to talk. But to give all that detailed information, like, I don't know. That makes me suspicious. Does that make you suspicious? It makes me a little suspicious. And that's the thing. As Alex and I looked at the police files— The only names that kept coming up were Calvin and Rosie. But there were other people in Tony Virgilio's life. People with possible motives to murder him. But the police never pursued those leads and never identified any other suspects with the motive to hurt Tony. In short, they overlooked all other theories for the murder. But we didn't. Coming up after the break, who else wanted Tony Virgilio dead? Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 
63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Looking at the police reports, Tony's family was largely absent from the investigation. There was also no focus on who he was. And I found that really strange. So I decided to find out for myself. Who was Tony Virgilio? Tony was born in Sacramento at the tail end of the Great Depression, just five years before my dad and Calvin. Tony was a young father. He had three kids by the time he turned 21. He spent almost his entire career in construction and got into business with Rosie and Calvin in 1972 when he was 33 years old. Tony was Italian, so in a way, the partnership was pretty unorthodox for the time. Stockton was and continues to be a segregated place. Even when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, the feeling in Stockton was that the Italians owned the farms and most of the upscale businesses, while the Mexicans and the Blacks worked for them. We reached out to all the members of the Virgilio family we could track down. His three children, multiple grandchildren, and widow but we only found one person willing to talk to us, his older sister, Betty Souter. She's 85 years old now and lives in Sacramento with her daughter. Betty was 38 when Tony was murdered. She remembered him as a source of joy for the family. My brother was a most gentle, kind man that ever lived. My brother was so handsome, women were crazy about him. The most handsome, the most remarkable man in the world. And our family has never been the same since he was murdered. It's clear that Betty loved her brother and that his murder devastated those closest to him. But she's also honest about the other aspects of his life that were kind of messy. Tony's life was complicated, just like my dad's. The side his family saw was different from the one he presented in public, like his ties to organized crime. The only thing that bothered me, he told me that he was letting mafia invest in him. And I told him, is it really worth it? Is it worth that? He said he had no choice. So it must have been cotton. Because I looked at her and she never said a word. According to Betty, Tony got involved with mafia at the encouragement of his wife. Carolyn Virgilio, also known as Cotton. It's true that Tony was a man under immense financial pressure. By the summer of 1973, Tony, Calvin, and Rosie's business, Port City Construction, was in serious debt. In an attempt to break into the market, the company had basically taken on projects at prices far lower than their competitors. As a result of underbidding, they suffered massive losses. And there was bad blood between the three partners. Calvin and Dad blamed Tony's mismanagement, and Tony blamed their accounting. But it didn't matter whose fault it was. As a partner, Tony was just as liable as Rosie and Calvin. If the company failed, 
he would have been personally responsible for a third of its debts. Betty's allegation that Carolyn was aware of Tony's mafia ties is actually corroborated by police reports. In one report by Sergeant Ross, just three days after the murder, Carolyn tells him that Tony said he was taking meetings with the mafia. Members, either from LA or Las Vegas, flew to Stockton to meet with him, Calvin, and Rosie. They were trying to get help funding their construction business. But ultimately, when it came down to making the deal, the mafia guys backed out. According to Carolyn, Tony told her they didn't like Calvin and Rosie. But what I find fascinating about this report is that Sergeant Ross point blank asked Carolyn, okay, do you think maybe these mafia guys killed your husband? And she immediately answers, no. It was Jones and Estrada and they acted alone. Carolyn gives no reason, at least none is cited in the report, as to why she felt that way. And then there's this interview with Michael Lewis, Tony's nephew, the day after the murder. Here's a reenactment of the interview transcript. Over at my aunt's house, we used to all get together, and I play guitar. And we were over there playing the guitar and whatnot, singing. (laughs) And he even told my aunt that he was in the mafia. He said... I sold my soul to the devil. He had told her that he had sold his soul to the devil. Those were his exact words? That's right. When was this? About June. June of what? 72. According to Lewis, Tony was involved in something called the organization, which would give people loans and jobs when they needed them. The only catch was that you were basically a front for organized crime. Lewis said when his own business was in trouble, Tony offered to let the organization come in and run things. But Lewis ultimately said no. He would rather let the business fold than get involved in whatever Tony was doing, which, according to his nephew, included trafficking drugs. What about narcotics? I have no idea. I I, I do know that Tony was... Maybe I shouldn't say this. (sighs) Anyway... (laughs) He was running for a while. For context, when he says running, he means running drugs. Do you know from where to where? No. And that I know because Tony told me himself that he was running. What kind of... I have no idea. I never discussed it with him. That's something I don't even want to... The less I know about it, the better off I am, you know? So why didn't the police look into these men from L.A. or investigate these alleged links that Tony had to the mafia? If the people closest to Tony are bringing up organized crime, then why did the police completely disregard that? Especially when you have family members feeling left out of the investigation. Tony's own sister, Betty, told me that the police's investigation didn't make sense. She didn't feel like Rosie and Calvin were completely innocent but also it wasn't right the way the police narrowed in on them. Betty pushed the DA to look into Tony's other business connections, but ultimately was sidelined. The assistant district attorney came down and told us that we better keep quiet or we'd be in serious trouble. We'd have serious problems. A possible theory is that Tony was killed because of his organized crime ties and his role in an illicit drug business. 
That was one angle completely ignored by police. But that wasn't the only theory they didn't investigate. Because what does every murder mystery have aside from money? Love. And Tony was no different. He was having an affair. An affair with a married woman. Cindy Memory was a secretary at Port City Construction. According to the documents, she met Tony at a party in July 1973. She was young, with a pale face, framed by dark hair. And fun fact, her dad was Bobo Olson, a well-known boxer who was the middleweight world champion in the 1950s. Cindy and Tony hit it off right away, but it was complicated. They both were married to other people. Within days of meeting, Cindy leaves her husband and moves into an apartment that Tony pays for. A month later, her husband, William Memory, apparently makes calls to someone who used to work at Port City and starts asking questions. He asks what Virgilio looks like and whether he could take him in a fight. The friend says no. Fast forward four months later to the night of the murder. William leaves his house and drives over to Cindy's place. They have an argument. He leaves her place at around five in the evening and drives to a nearby drugstore. He then goes back to Cindy's apartment at about 5.30. He and Cindy make up and decide to leave town together. They leave her apartment at around 7 p.m., and they make one more stop before leaving town. Now, all of this is based on William's own retelling of that night. Police suspect that Virgilia was shot around 5.30 p.m. Around that time, William was between her apartment and the drugstore, literally within 300 feet of where police believe Tony was shot. What astounds me about this is that the police never talked to William, the one man who reportedly threatened Virgilio. They didn't take his prints, and he was never interviewed or questioned. He wasn't considered a suspect. There were no other suspects. Tony's ties to organized crime and the affair were never considered as motives for this murder. The only people under investigation were Dad and Calvin. My father didn't tell me much about the case, but the one thing he was adamant about was that the police conducted a shoddy investigation, and Tony's own family felt the same way. Here's Betty again. Okay, so you weren't satisfied at all by the police and the job that they did. Yeah, uh, none of us were. About a month after the murder, the police investigation was running cold. With no evidence, the district attorney makes the decision to not charge their prime suspects, Calvin Jones and Rosie Estrada. It seems like my dad and Calvin might be in the clear. But not everyone was ready to let this murder go. Across the country, an organization was starting their own investigation into Tony's death, determined to have someone go down for the crime. A group with the money and incentive to pin this on Calvin and Rosie. That powerful institution? That's next time on The Estate.
The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV. Hosted by me, Alex Estrada and Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier-Salazar, Alex Estrada, and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier-Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Moda and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollock, Sarah Boannon, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger 